and Austin, um, <laughs> as I uh, read the, the word, I'm reading from Luke 1, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, and I'm reading from the ESV. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Even for your excellent leadership on our board. So we find ourselves right in the middle of Luke's gospel, one of the four Greco-Roman biographies of Jesus's life. I think a good way of thinking about it is that uh, this is an impression that Jesus made on his immediate followers. This is how they knew him, uh, what they understood him to be. And if we go back just one chapter to chapter eight, you'll say what an incredible figure this Jesus is that he calms the sea, uh, much as I've done here this morning uh, with this one, uh, that he calms the sea, he casts out darkness, that he's able to heal of uh, terrible illnesses, he can even raise people from the dead. You say, what an incredible figure this is. In some ways, uh, you say, well, if the gospel ended there, what would the impression be on the readers? I think it would be something like, wow, what an amazing guy. And the reason why chapter 9 then takes us a bit off guard, you say, in a way, it kind of introduces another kind of miracle. It introduces this notion that the ministry is to be shared and that what we're to make of Jesus goes beyond our immediate material needs. See, I think some people, they look at Jesus and say, well, there's a lot of this kind of work to be done, isn't there? I mean, there's all kinds of natural disasters. He should go around calming those. We all have things in our body that could be feeling a bit better. Uh, you know, we'll all die. Can't he just raise us from the dead? In other words, there's a host of material needs. Can't Jesus just keep doing that? And chapter 9 would say no. There's something more at stake. That what's at stake actually is that the people of God are to bear witness to the deeper meaning of who Jesus is. And so that's where we begin today, bold heading number one in the notes, is that Luke wants us to see that his impression of Jesus, what Jesus came to do, that his, uh, God's salvation is more important than displays of power. Say, a lot of us, again, you say we're so fixated on experience and feeling and material blessings. Say, we want to know from chapter 9 to say Jesus has something else in mind, and that is that the kingdom of God has come upon us. In other words, the acts of power of chapter 8 aren't to leave us. If we just stop it, wow, that's impressive. Great ethical teacher. Isn't he a marvelous person? Say, if we stop there, we've missed the point of it all. Say, Luke, and the testimony of Scripture is that God 
put forth Jesus to reconcile us to him, right? To say, we, we've been on the wrong side of God's economy. We've offended God. We've each done our own thing. And Jesus is God's chosen instrument, if you will, his only begotten son put forth in history to make the entire creation right. To reconcile not only the fallen crown of his creation, namely Homo sapiens, but actually to reconcile the entire cosmos. You say, that's the thrust of it all. The miracles authenticate who Jesus is. You know, friends, this makes perfect sense. That we do live in a materialistic age, and we, let's face it, are a materialistic people. But we all know that material blessings and material fixes are only temporary. Say, yeah, we can be healed, and we gladly pray for healing. You say, but we all know that we're going to continue to decay and atrophy. It's as if the person, yes, I've been healed of cancer, but then we'll go out into one of the other great hazards in the world, and we'll continue to age. You say, any kind of material blessing is temporary. So we'd be very disappointed if that was the extent of it. And Luke says, no, Jesus did these incredible things so that the initial followers and all the followers throughout history, including us here today in Avon, would get the point that God put forth Jesus to make us right with him, that we're sinners and we need God's help. And you'll say, you'll notice, what is the content? If you ask the question, say, what's the main content of Jesus' preaching? He gives a lot of sermons in these Gospels. Say, what's the backbone of his preaching? The backbone of his preaching is exactly what he tells his followers to do here. Notice verse 2. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And if you again look at verse 6, you'll say, And they departed, the disciples, and they went through the village, villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You say, what's the thrust of what Jesus wants uh, his followers to do, but rather to proclaim that the kingdom of God has broken in. And you'll notice, you say, notice in verse 2 and verse 6 how the words kingdom of God and gospel are functional equivalents. You say, a lot of people toss those words around. Say, it's the kind of, you know, these are lofty terms. What is the kingdom of God? What is the gospel? You say, well, we really need to define that. And what we're to see is that the gospel, it's a heralding of good news, Right? That's what it means. We think it's the gospel primarily about this. It's a heralding of good news that God has acted in history in Jesus to make us right with God. That before I'm doing my own thing, I have selfish impulses. What else would I be doing? I'm just kind of living, plowing through life on my own. I'm aware that there's a God. I've probably offended him. I don't know how I'm right with him. You know what? There's great news. God put forth Jesus in history to buy back his people so that we can be right with God and live with a real meaning and purpose. You say, that's the gospel. It's heralding the good news. Think of a time in your life you hear good news. It's wonderful to get good news. And as Steve just prayed, this is the good news of all good news, that we can be right with God through Jesus. And the kingdom of God, then, if you think about it, just by extension, if Jesus is the rightful king of all, and we're surrendered to King Jesus, then we're subjects of the kingdom living out what it's like to be under the rightful king. So that's what a Christian is, if you think about it. You say, we're the ones who live out in the world what it's like to be under the rightful rule of Christ, ultimately anticipating the rightful consummation of that kingdom when Jesus comes again. Jesus says, go out, preach that God has broken into the world in me. There's great news. You can be right with God, and I'm doing all these acts of power so that you know that it's true. That's the point. I want you, don't have to turn there now, but Mark chapter 1, very enlightening. A lot of people think, I think with good reason, that Mark's the earliest gospel. Jesus comes on the scene. How does Mark 
introduce his hero, so to speak, with this. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. All this preaching that Jesus does, what's the thrust of it? God's acted in me. There's great news for all you sinners. Repent, that is, turn to God. Pay attention to God, not just the world, not just stop doing your own thing, but repent and turn to Jesus. Come into the family of God, and that's the thrust and the point of it all. So you say, any witness of the church, any proclamation of the church must be Christocentric. Say, what do I mean by Christocentric is, is simply Jesus-centered. A lot of people have a lot of opinions on what I, they think I should be doing, uh, telling all you about your personal health decisions or giving you a few little values to help you more pop, be more popular at work or uh, doing this or doing that. You say, any church that does that fails in their primary obligation. That is the Christocentric, Jesus-centered witness of the church that God has acted in Christ and has bought back sinners and everyone who's not repented and turned to Jesus is on the wrong side of God's saving economy. And so that's the point of all this. Say, why does chapter 9 emerge in such this way to send out and preach? An odd thing to do, isn't it? To say, well, well sending out these people to preach. And yet that is the primary witness of the church, that God has acted in Jesus. We can be right with God. We should repent and turn to Christ, confessing our sins and living in him. God's salvation is more important than individual displays of power and materialistic blessings. That there's something much more at stake, and that is that those of us who are in Christ are in the kingdom of God, and we have the privilege of doing his bidding for the short time that we have on his earth. So God's salvation, more important than displays of power. Now, bullheading number two there in their notes, I think, comes out of this. <laughs> Amazingly, God uses the voices and the witness of his followers to advance the kingdom. So it's actually quite moving, isn't it? You have this incredible figure in Jesus. I mean, incredible figure. He's got everything at his command. I mean, that's one thing that struck me in chapter 7 and 8. One little word. It's not as if Jesus is confounded by any of this, but one little word from his mouth, and all's put right. And again, you say, well, what's the method then? What's the means of getting the name of Jesus out there. I mean, certainly there's a lot of ways God could have... What does he do? He commissions the fishermen and the tax collectors. Go out and plainly tell other people who I am and what I've done for you. Say, it's a remarkable passage. It's a very moving passage to take plain, average people. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean like us. Average, normal people to advance the kingdom of God. Why would God do this? Say, a lot of times in conversation, you know, think that can go like this. You could say, firstly, right, um, why doesn't God force everyone to believe in him? A lot of people, of course, say, wait a second, we're creatures of God. Uh, why, why doesn't God just build into us, you know, here we come out of our mother's wombs, and it's a built-in program that we surrender to God, and, and there's no real choice in the matter. Just, you know, let's just do away with all this, you know, drama of Jesus on the cross and our rebellion. It's just built in. Why didn't God do that? Think ultimately because that would be so incredibly dehumanizing. Say, so we've all heard the saying that our faith is not about institutional formulas, but it's about a relationship with God through Christ. Think of any meaningful relationship you have in your life. Is it ever coerced or forced? 
Say, not at all. Say, the, the glory of God's saving economy is that he has made us with faculties to respond to him and obey to him. And if it's coerced, then we would really have a new definition of what it means to be human. So God does not force everyone to believe. Say, I think that's why he doesn't do that. Well, there's other alternatives, aren't there? Say, why doesn't God perform more wonders? Say, a lot of people like this option too. Say, well, you know, preaching, really? Is that how low we have to go? Why doesn't God do more stuff like back in chapter 8? I mean, you saw the great thunderstorm this morning. I mean, why don't we have these obvious displays of God's power in nature? Now, that would really convince us that, 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 that there's a God. You say, well, if that's the case, then how would we know that God has rescued us in the person of Jesus? That's always the problem with miracles and what we could call natural theology, right? If it's just about God's display of power, say, does that alone convince us of our sin and rebellion and that God gave us the gift of Jesus and the gift of grace? Usually not. And contrary to at least the debates that I get into, say, people I know that have witnessed miracles here actually don't turn to God in repentance, Look back at chapter 8, right? The Gerasene demoniac. You remember that? Incredible thing. Demons cast out of this animalistic scenario. They go into the pigs. Pigs run down the hill. They drown. And what do all the people of the Gerasene say? Jesus, get out of here. We want nothing to do with you. I've seen this over and over and over again in my life. People who witness what you would say that's an obvious display of God's power and his kindness. Their hearts often turn cold, and they say, we won't turn to God. There's so many people that many of us have been there. New birth, birth of a child. Say, is this just stuff, just happens? Or some people say, something else is at play here. Or some kind of healing, which does happen, or even something like the water cycle. Say, well, this is just coincidence. It's just blind chance. Or actually, there's a very good hand behind it. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that just wonders in nature doesn't convict the heart. It doesn't show us of our need, that we're sinners, that there's a God, and that he's acted kindly in Jesus. So still another option, maybe best one yet. Why doesn't God perceptibly and audibly speak from the sky? Now, surely this has to be a much better option than having some preacher up front going on in a monologue every single Sunday, and the church going out telling other people about Jesus. What if God himself spoke from the heavens? And I think we might be able to say, if that was the case, then God's people wouldn't have the privilege of the mission. See, not to turn to an anthropocentric view of things, but I, I actually think the Westminster divines had this absolutely correct. They said, you know, what's the chief end of a human life? Do you remember what it says? It says, to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you think, are those things in the natural fallen mind are not connected? Wait a second, the human lives for God and gives him glory, and that's when life is most enjoyed. But I think a Christian, you say, that is it. What would bring God more glory than having the crown of his creation, again, humans, responding to him in obedience and love out of the faith that he supplied, and then going out into the world plainly, testifying to what a gracious and good God he is and how he's put forth his son. Say, don't you think then now it comes together maybe to say God uses the weak voices and the weak witness of his people 
because in that he is maximally glorified and in return we can delight in the privilege and the purpose of our lives. So I want you to think about that. Say you're not a Christian today. You think about this big question of meaning and purpose. It's tossed around there a lot. Say, actually, a lot of people in our country, you all have very important jobs. I don't want anything taken away from that. You're running banks, your physicians, your your parents, teachers, really, really important jobs. I'm not taking anything away from that. But I think all of us, at some point, you say, is this it? I, I feel as if my life should count a little bit more than the 35 years I can work or, you know, whatever it would be. Or in my case, we're printing all this money. I'll be preaching well into my, who knows, if God gives me, say, um, you know, you get the idea. Say, is this it? And I think we would see in something like Luke 9, say there's something more at stake. Live your lives in such a way that testifies to what God has done in Christ, how good the creator is, that we want more people in the family of God, that God's acted decisively, that you can be in the family of God too. You can be made right with him. You see that? That's why God uses us out of his kindness and his grace so that we could have the privilege of the mission and delight in him. And he'd be glorified by the plain speaking of fallen people. So objection here, I think. Objection for me comes, well, you know, this is to the 12 apostles. So children, you're doing your questionnaires. 12 apostles, answer number three. Is that right? Two or three on your worksheets. Okay, there are 12 apostles. You say, well, I, you know, this is nice, but it's given to these famous 12 figures. I mean, does this really apply to Providence Church today? And I would answer that with, with a, a no and a yes or a yes and a no. The office of apostle, the apostles, is most certainly an office confined to the first century church. Say, this to me is very clear. If you read something like Acts 122, Judas is obviously out of the picture. What do the disciples say there? Say, you know what? We need somebody else to fill the office of the apostle, and we must find somebody who witnessed the resurrection and knew Jesus. Also, the apostles, like in the passage that we're given, if you look at, they're given extraordinary abilities um, to do things like cure diseases on the spot or raise people from the dead. You watch what Peter and Paul are doing in Acts. You say the office of the apostle is a technical term for those who knew Jesus. They could write uh, Bible books, right? How did you know if something made it in the canon? Well, it had to be traced back to a real apostle. So the apostles are a specific office to the first century church. God gave that small group of men a special ability to get the church off the ground and to give us the accounts that are now in our Bible. At the same time, say the word apostle not used as an office just means one who sent. A follower of Jesus who sent out to do this bidding. And in that sense, the principles given to the apostles, that is the primary obligation of the church, is for all of us to proclaim. You read Acts 28, or excuse me, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? We're to go out and make disciples, make followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? Go into the all world and make disciples. The job of the church is not to dabble in analytical theories and organize marches and sign petitions and put out statements. The primary obligation of the church is to proclaim what God has done in Jesus and that we can be bought back, that we repent and turn to him. And the church is always, the true church has always understood that that's its mission. Acts chapter 6, 
we must not neglect the preaching of God's word and what he's done in Jesus. All the great preachers, right? The primary duty of the church and what we do is to fill the great commission to make followers of Christ, to recognize that God has acted in Jesus and out of that spills our witness. So the moves that we've made from Luke 9, God's plan of salvation in Jesus is way more important than personal experiences or temporary materialistic gains. God wonderfully uses the voices and the witness of his people to advance his kingdom because in that he gets glory and we delight and enjoy him and can fulfill the mission. Now also, and lastly, is that this passage happens to give a lot of very nice, I would call it, practical advice on, on how the church is to do this mission. And it starts there in verse 1. Say, so did you catch it? And he called these disciples together, and Jesus, what did he do? He gave them power and authority. That any Christian knows that any hope that we have of fulfilling our mission of making followers of Jesus is ultimately not dependent upon our craft or dependent on our ability to string the right sentences together, but it's dependent on our yielding to the power and authority of God's spirit that is in work in us. Say, there's times in my life, I think I've shared this before, I say, well, I can use, you know, lofty rhetoric, and you say, I really nailed it, and you study all the arguments, and I got all these, you know, fancy credentials, you know, nothing. And there are times where I feel that my tongue is tied, I've made a mess of things, but praise be to God that by the power of his spirit that he emboldened his people to witness and he softens the hearts of the hearers as everyone who's a Christian in the room would say. Say, I didn't just, you know, come up with this on my own, but God made my heart tender. He gave me the gift of faith. Goes all the way back. It's Jesus' power at work through his people. And we, thanks to Pentecost, that is say, we, those of us who surrender to Christ, have received his spirit. And when we fulfill our mission, we rest on him. It always can be intimidating as an evangelist, right, to say, well, I've got to do it just right. Or what if I make a fool of myself? Say, that's going to be an us-centered approach rather than this approach, right? The power and the authority is granted to his followers from Jesus himself. You know, I have a friend, he was an atheist, was going to drive off a bridge. He had remembered some years before meeting a Christian and uh, really just remembered him because the, the, the Christian was kind to him. That was the only thing that... Um, uh, you know, led to their, you know, whatever you'd call it, just being acquaintances. And so my friend says, you know, I'm about to take my life, had two small children. And he said, you know, I'm going to at least one more, I, that, that face of that kind Christian popped into my mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the church, and I'm, if he's there, we'll have a conversation. So all that, that happens. My friend, who, uh, again, doesn't commit suicide, goes to talk to the Christian. And the Christian simply asked three very simple questions. He said, firstly, what's wrong? And my atheistic friend said, I just went off for an hour of all that's wrong in my life. And when I was done venting that, there was another question from the Christian. Is your life going the way you want it to? Again, my atheistic friend said, another hour of just me ranting on how you know, terrible, again, my life is, it's going the wrong way. And then the third question, you know, Jesus has made a big difference in my life. Would you like to try a different way? Can I tell you about what God has done in Jesus? So yeah, I'd like that. And the Christian very plainly and simply said, God's acted. There's good news. God's acted in Jesus. You don't need to plow through your life and your own sin and embarrassment and rebellion, but you can be restored and made whole and pure. You can even go on mission for him. 
You say, I tell that story, my friends converted. I tell that story only to think about those questions. What's wrong? Is your life going the way you want it to? Can I tell you about what Jesus has done in my life? So you don't need to go to Oxbridge to say those things. In fact, it might even be a hindrance. Say, rather, what it takes is a reliance on God's power and authority in the lives of his people to trust him that he will embolden us and trust him that he will soften the hearts of those whom are his. Also, notice what else does Jesus take, tell them? Verse 3, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. I must say, Mallory's very thankful. I have more than one tunic. Uh, when I preach, I tend to sweat a lot, so not these apostles. They only got one tunic. Say, why these instructions? Oh, I think you can flip ahead, read in Luke 22, but it seems to be so these apostles would be, again, dependent on God for all their needs. He asked them in Luke 22, when I told you to go out with nothing, and referring to our passage, when I told you to do that, did you lack anything? They say, no, we didn't lack anything. What does that teach us? That it's, it's, it's bad for us to be worldly. That the primary mission of the church isn't accomplished by the stuff that we have, but again, by the power of God working through people that are dependent upon him. And likewise, you know, refreshingly, this confuses a lot of people. Verse five, and wherever they don't receive you, you say, we say well, you're, you're a Christian now, so you just kind of keep going after them over and over and over again for perpetuity. No, that's not what he says. And, and when they don't receive you, you leave that town, you shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them, and you move on. You see, friends, we aren't pressured to be people pleasers. Galatians 1.10. Say, a lot of us, is, is that what it means to be Christian witness? To, you know, just kind of just, to, you know, not have a, a good view of the mission and the vastness of people? No, Jesus says, look, go and, and, and be kind and live out your faith. And, and if somebody says, I don't want any of that, you say, this is where you get the idea of God as a gentleman. That we don't need to be people pleasers. We're not trying to be well-liked. We're just trying to be faithful. And that's what I think is meant by um, the apostles standing or leaving as a testimony against them. He said, does this mean we're to be obnoxious to non-Christians or mean to non-Christians or tell them, you know, say, no, I think, I think all that means is stay faithful. Stay faithful to King Jesus. Continue to live in him and delight in him and herald the good news. And you know what? A lot of people aren't going to like you, but that's okay because He's the real king, and it's his job and not ours. We're just to be faithful, and that, in the end, will win the day. So what wonderful principles rely on God's power as we witness that we're to live lives that are not worldly but dependent upon God, that we're not worried about the opinions of other people. And then again, I think out of this is to expect, it's built in, that we expect rejection a lot more than we, accept, uh, we, we should uh, think of exception. For a long time in America, I, I think we got to get our heads around this. That the, the brand of biblical faith that I think we're called to, and my guess is all of you, by virtue of being here, you feel called to as well, I hope and I pray, that that kind of thing, if you notice, is not going to be a majority movement. So we got to think about what that means. But to me, it's wonderfully refreshing that it's built in here, right? Say, actually, you apostles, and you've got a lot of power. I mean, you're, the you're going out into the world. You're going to face a lot of rejection. And that can't embitter you or make you hard, but rather make you all the more cheerful to say, you know what? Christ has called me. He's the chief sufferer, and I'm to bear witness to him that we can expect rejection. Why is that? Because Jesus is a stumbling stone. 
Why is Jesus a stumbling stone? Because God and Jesus confronts our pride and our self-sufficiency. Jesus stands against my ability to say, no, I, I don't need any help, that I don't need, I can put myself right with God and say what Jesus says is actually I'm a sinner and I'm on the wrong side of God's wrath and I need help because I'm dead. That's an offensive message to our pride. That it's not gonna be a popular message, but again, why is that not intimidating for us? Because we're ultimately dependent on the power and authority of the spirit that lives within us and we cheerfully and kindly do all we can to say, God has acted in Jesus. There's great news. You can be made right. You can have a purpose in your life. Say, that's the good news. And then this last little bit before I invite the team up. You see, why seven to nine? Just God in his wisdom giving us verses seven to nine. What happens through the efforts of these fishermen? But the most powerful person in the area, now keep in mind, Herod the Tetrarch ruled from 4 BC to 39 AD. You say, this is a an old world strong man right here. You say, Herod the Tetrarch, you look at what happens to him. What does he do? He hears. He hears about Jesus. I don't think the apostles, I bet you'd say, I don't know if the apostles would have known that Herod had heard, but through their little efforts of witnessing in their various areas, in plain language, as simple people, that that message of Jesus goes out. And it even converts the heart of Herod, at least to the point of saying, I'd like to know more about Jesus. And do we dare say, think about this this week, but why does Herod recall that he beheaded John the Baptist? Is it possible that hearing of the purity and mission of Jesus, that Herod is convicted of his own sin and wants to learn more about Christ? See how that can happen through us too, that we faithfully represent the Lord Jesus we stay true to the king and allow God to work through us so that others are not only provoked to learn more about Jesus, but might even recall their own sin, be convicted of their sin, repent, and turn to Christ to be made with God. So friends, I hope this, above all else, emboldens you. It emboldens you in your task. Say again, we all have very important jobs, but the primary job, right, of our church is to be a witness to proclaim what God has done in Jesus. That's the message of salvation. It's ultimately good news for all who hear and respond that God wants to use our voices and our witness as plain average people to do his kingdom work. And we do that by being dependent on him, not attached to the world, knowing that we're going to be a kind of minority movement and not a popular movement, and knowing that God will use us even to stir the hearts of those who we don't even know about. Say, so that to me is a wonderful calling on a church and the primary mission of the church. So may we, uh, again, be thankful to that end, live it out in our places of work and influence, and we'll sing these two great hymns, both about glorifying God and being on mission and being dead-focused. Father, thank you for this. Lord, I confess that I, I at times am fixated on experience and materials. May we realize that you put forth Jesus for something far greater. That is that we can be made right with you. That this creation that's in rebellion is going to be restored in the end. And help us to remember this treasure, right? The, as you say in 2 Corinthians, that there's a treasure in clay vessels. Uh, the treasure in clay vessels is the spirit of God at work in, in the people. So may we never lose sight of our task to get sidetracked, to, to do something that's secondary, but rather to live out our mission. Lord, help us to be dependent on your power and authority, to not fall into the trap of being people pleasers, and to know that as you work through us that 
Many, we pray, many would hear and be stirred and convicted. And just like Herod, they would say at the very least, I want to see Jesus. I want to know more about him. Use us, we pray. Multiply your kingdom as you see fit for Christ's honor and your glory. Amen.